I know you're wondering, why are you here speaking today? If uh, this is Mission Celebration Week, why are you here speaking? Why isn't there a missionary speaking? Because my responsibility today is to come and do something very, very specific. And then after this morning, then you're going to have guest speakers and all the other services. But I have something that I want to say to you, and it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I invite you to turn there with me and follow with me as we read the first seven verses of that chapter. No matter what translation you're reading from, you're, you're going to see the significance of this chapter as we go through it in these, these particular verses as we go through it. Beginning with verse 1, and we're going to come back and look at these in greater detail in a moment, but in verse 1 it says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift in the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. He goes on in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 8, to talk about love and the importance of proving their love and we may look at that verse in just a few minutes as well. Let's pray together. Lord, the responsibility this morning for this very first message in this week of missions, focusing on taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, is such an important responsibility. I don't have the capability to be able to communicate fully all that needs to be heard. And Lord, the reality is that some people will be distracted. They won't hear what I have to say and they will miss out on what is really the heartbeat of the church in general and specifically of our own church. I pray, Lord God, that today that somehow you will use me as small and insignificant as I am, that you will use me for the cause of the gospel reaching places where it has not yet reached and reaching people who have no hope of Christ. They don't even know who Christ is in many cases. Lord, please speak through me today. I yield myself, as imperfect as I am, I yield myself to you to be your vessel this morning. In your name I pray, amen. I hope you can sense in my voice the the deep sense of urgency that I have and the significance of, of what I want to say to you over the next few minutes together. I want to begin by telling you that I've come to do something very, very specific. Not that every message that I preach isn't specific. Every message has a purpose and it always has a conclusion and has a reason for being. But today's message is very, very specific because what I'm about to do is invite all of you all of you, those of you that are listening and watching, to invite all of you to join us in our world missions effort. And to do that by way of your giving, 
to do that by way of becoming a part of what many others in our congregation are already doing. I'm also here to encourage those of you that are already participating with us in the cause of missions that you would ask God what he would have you to do for another year and maybe God will have you to increase what you have been doing. Because I hope to challenge your faith and to say, you know what? God could use me as a channel of his blessings in greater ways than even I thought possible. And my prayer is that God will use me in that way uh, today. People sometimes ask me, they say, Pastor, does your church, does our church plant churches? And the the answer to that question is absolutely. We are in the church planting business. It's just that we're not planting them on top of other churches in the same community where there's a dozen other churches. We are planting churches in parts of the world where there are people who don't have a church to attend, where there are people who don't have radio and television programming, Christian radio, television, and radio programming to be able to hear, where some of them don't even have access to a completed Bible in their own language. Yes, we're involved in in church planning and It's absolutely central to what we are doing, but we have chosen not to build on somebody else's foundation so that all we're doing is swapping members amongst ourselves, but to take the gospel light to some of the darkest parts of the earth and and to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to people who are desperately in need. I want you to imagine yourself for a moment This is a Sunday. It's just like every other Sunday that's come and gone over the course of your life, no matter how old you are. You got up this morning, and your only thought today was, how am I going to make sure that I have enough food to eat for the remainder of the day? You weren't thinking about whether you were going to go to church that day because you don't even really know what a church is, and what you know of a church is filled with ritualism and ceremonialism It's very empty religiosity. It has very little contact with the real people and the real lives of individuals that makes any kind of a difference. It might give them a sense of being religious, but it doesn't give them a sense of being a child of the living God. And they're getting up today and they're feeding themselves. They have no hope. They don't know what life holds for them in the future. They don't know who holds the future. They don't have a sovereign God that they even understand in their concept of understanding. They have no knowledge of a Savior who came and gave his life for mankind. They have no knowledge of it. They will get up and they will go through the mundane ritual of the day just like they do every other day, just hoping to make it through the day. And when tragedies strike... They won't have any explanation, they won't have any understanding, and they won't have any hope beyond the grave. Their loved ones die. As far as they know, that's the end. They have no hope of ever seeing them again or ever being with them again. They don't live with any peace. They don't live with any sense of of that uh, joy that comes from having a relationship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're just going through the motions of a life, hoping to make a life. Some of them are in inner cities. They're in bigger cities. And they're living for what Americans are living for. They're living for 
a bigger house and a bigger income and a nicer car and to have more things to be able to pack into their house and when they don't have room in their house any longer for the things to go rent a storage building so that you can keep the things that you can't keep in your house in the storage building and that's all they live for. They don't know that there's a greater purpose to their lives. They don't understand that God has a purpose for their lives. And they're purpose isn't just to make a living. It isn't just to do the best they can. It isn't just to have a nest egg at the end of, of the years of your working so that you can live in retirement. It isn't just to be able to have food for that particular day or to be able to live through the diseases and illnesses that are present, that are all around you. It is that God has something he wants to accomplish of eternal good in your life and through your life. They don't have any of that. You pick up things that you can read that are that's Christian literature if you wish to read it. I have multiple, I have dozens of Bibles in my, my office and my library, any one of which I could pick up in any number of translations from which I wish to read. I don't worry about where my next meal is coming from. I'm not concerned about my children who, when they were little, were they going to have enough food to eat? I wasn't concerned about their education, though if they were living today in America, I would be concerned about their education. I didn't, wasn't concerned about their education. They're going to have lots of opportunities in lots of avenues to be able uh, to be educated and learn math and science and history and geography and the things that you need to be able to move forward in the course of life. And most of them in America will be able to find a job. Trust me, there are a lot of jobs that nobody's filling. They don't have a job. They don't have that sense of, you know, I've got that security, that financial security that'll take care of me for the rest of my life. And more importantly, they have no idea what happens at death. They have no idea that there's life after death. They have no idea that to not know Christ is to be separated from God forever. They have no idea that there's a heaven that's more wondrous and more beautiful and more glorious than I can even begin to describe. They don't even know it. Why do you do missions, Pastor? Why are you involved in church planning? Why aren't we putting churches on top of churches in areas where we've already got multiple churches doing the work of God? Why aren't we doing that? We are in church planning. We're just seeking to put those churches in places where there aren't the opportunities that you and I have in the United States of America. Now, please don't misunderstand that. I'm not being critical of churches that plant churches on top of other churches. If that's what God leads them to do, that's what they ought to do. They have to follow the leadership of the Lord, whatever God tells them to do. But God didn't tell us to do that. God didn't tell us to move down the road a half a mile and start another church. God told us to go to places where there are no churches and send missionaries there who can win people to Christ, who can disciple them in the faith, who can gather them together and teach them and train them about what a church is so that when the missionary is long gone, that church is self-sustaining and that church is self-propagating. They're planting churches in areas in their own countries amongst their own people where there are no churches. There are no churches. 
unless you're looking for a Mormon church, unless you're looking for a Jehovah's Witness church, unless you're looking for a Roman Catholic church, there are no Bible-preaching, gospel-centered, Jesus-focused churches. Why do we do missions? We do missions because we have this incredible opportunity and this incredible responsibility as Americans who have been blessed more than any other nation on the face of the earth. We have a responsibility to take what God has given to us and to share it with others. And the challenge is this. Americans, I can move you to give money. I can move you to give money if I can show you an immediate need that will be met. If I can show you a child who's starving today, and I can tell you that by you giving money, that child will have food to eat throughout the course of the rest of this year, I can move you immediately. There'll be large sums of money that'll be given for those purposes because as Americans, for the most part, we are impulse givers. When we see the need, we give to the need because it gets met immediately. But when it comes to the cause of missions, it's something that you're probably not going to see the results of until you stand before Jesus Christ face to face. It's something that's going to cost you and you're going to have to go for years and years to the end of your life and you're at home with Christ to be able to know that your investment was worth the effort that you put into it because changing people's lives spiritually is, especially in other parts of the world, is much more difficult at times than it is feeding their bellies and putting clothes on their backs. The Jerusalem church was a church in poverty. They were suffering. They didn't have the necessities of life. The Jerusalem church was the largest church of the New Testament, the early New Testament. It was the largest church. All the other churches were smaller congregations. Many of them were just a handful of people in a house that met somewhere. They had an elder. They had a pastor who led them in that house. And there were maybe a number of those kinds, handfuls of people in houses. They were house churches, if you will. The Jerusalem church was the biggest congregation, but they were suffering significantly. They were suffering for a number of reasons. One is because they were pilgrims. Many of them were pilgrims. They came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of Judaism. You came to Jerusalem. You came to the temple on the Temple Mount. Mary and I have been there. The temple's not there, but we've been to the Temple Mount. They came to the Temple Mount to worship at the temple, to bring their sacrifices at the temple. And so there were pilgrims throughout the course of the year that were constantly coming to Jerusalem. But on that particular year that... Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to heaven. Something extremely special took place on the day of Pentecost when the Jewish people would have traveled from all over the world to be there. The church was birthed into existence. People were being saved. 3,000 in one day. The numbers moved to 5,000. It says 5,000 men. So you add their wives, you add their children to that number, and you begin to see this church in a matter of weeks is growing exponentially. I mean, it is multiplying. It's not just adding numbers. It's multiplying its numbers. 
And a lot of those folks who had come to Judea and to Jerusalem for that feast and were a part of what God did in the city of Jerusalem didn't want to go home. Would you? I mean, if you had just seen God do a miraculous work in the midst of people where revival broke out and lives were dramatically changed and people believed in Jesus Christ and there were mass baptisms taking place, would you want to go away from that place? But the result was that, you know, ultimately their money ran out. If they were staying in an inn where they rented a place to be able to stay, their money ran out. Or their families, if they were staying with their families, ultimately couldn't keep them. And some of them wouldn't keep them. Because once they became followers of Jesus, once they had believed in Christ, their families cut them off. You can't stay here with us any longer. Long before the cancel culture came to the 21st century, it has been working for many centuries, and it was in the first century. If you're a Christian and you've become a follower of Jesus, you're family, but no longer. We sever ties with you. And there's these people hanging around Jerusalem, these pilgrims in Jerusalem. They can't get work. There's not enough jobs for them. There's not enough uh, of the agrarian society to be able to feed them. Uh, they, they won't uh, be cared for by the concerns of the people that are around them. They're not interested in them because they're believers in Jesus and there's poverty everywhere. There were the issues of the economics as well. You think about Rome. We always think about Rome and Rome was a, Rome was a wealthy place. If you've, been, if you've been to Rome, Mary and I have been to Rome. <laughs> if you've been to Rome, Rome's a wealthy place. But do you understand the Roman Empire had its tentacles spread out all over that part of the world? And the further you got from Rome, the less you had. And you became a resource for Rome. They came and took your natural resources. They came and took your goods. They came and took your money. You remember what they were doing in Jesus' day? They had Jews who were working for them to extract taxes from them in order to pay Rome. And not only were those Jews, those tax collectors, taking money, more money, they were taking money from uh, the people for themselves as well. And they were, they were padding their own pocketbooks. They, they were making themselves rich on the back of the people. But you, you think socialism works? You think communism works? You, you just don't know anything about world history. Yeah, it makes the elite, central, wealthy ones more wealthy. But those who are the providers, they continue to give and get poorer and poorer all the time. And it was happening in the first century. And persecution on top of it, if you wanted a job and you professed to be a Christian, you couldn't get a job. It's beginning to sound like America, isn't it? If you held to some belief about Jesus, you were ostracized and you were cut off from the community. Your own family didn't want you in their house. The community didn't want you around either. They didn't want to hear any more about Jesus. They didn't want to see anything else about the followers of Christ. They didn't want to hear anything else. And poverty was everywhere. And the Apostle Paul began to gather an offering that would be taken for the people in Jerusalem. What a better way, no better way to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ 
those that are in Jerusalem are primarily, if not exclusively, Jewish believers. The ones from which the Apostle Paul is raising money to be able to help the poor in Jerusalem are primarily, if not exclusively, Gentiles. And what did Jesus do in his death and his resurrection? He broke down the middle wall of partition that separates Jew and Gentile, and he brought them together in one new body called the church. We're all on equal ground. We're all on equal ground. Jews aren't better than Gentiles, and Gentiles aren't better than Jews. We all come together, and we lose those tags, and we tell everybody we are followers of Jesus Christ, regardless of what our nationality might be. And they all came together, these Gentiles beginning to raise this offering. It was going to show this incredible unity between the church that the the Gentiles held, held no ill will toward the Jews, and the Jews would see the attitude of the Gentiles, and there would become a oneness that existed. So Paul goes about raising this money. He comes to the city of Corinth. Corinth is in southern Greece. If you think of Greece, Corinth is down here in Achaia, down here in the southern part of Greece. And Corinth is, for the most part, a pretty wealthy place. For the most part, they're doing pretty well financially. And they agree, at least a year before, this is written, they agree, you know that from chapter 9, verse 2, at least a year before, they agree, we want to participate in this offering, Paul, that you are raising for the Jerusalem Christians to help them because they're suffering. We want to be a part of that. But a year later, they haven't completed that offering. They haven't taken that offering fully. And so Paul comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he uses another congregation of people, actually several congregations of people in Macedonia. Macedonia is northern Greece. They're distance-wise not that far apart, at least as we think about it. They're not that far apart. Southern Greece and northern Greece, they're not that far apart, but they were worlds apart when it came to finances when it came to you know, their, their ability to, to give money. They were worlds apart. C Corinth had plenty. It was, a, it was a port city. It was a place where commerce was constantly going. Macedonia? Macedonia was not only in the midst of some of the most harsh persecution there was, Macedonia was as well experiencing some of the deepest poverty that there was. And yet the Macedonians said to Paul, Paul, we want to be a part of that offering. We want to be a part of that offering. Now, every one of you sitting here, me too, you're saying, why? They don't have what they need. Why would you want to give to those in need when you don't have what you need? Let the rich people do it. Let the rich cities do it. But Corinth wasn't doing it. In Macedonia, in the northern part of Greece, that's Philippi, that's Berea, that's Thessalonica. In the northern part of Greece, they said, we want to be a part of this offering. I want you to notice it. Verse 2, that in a great trial of affliction, who is? The churches of Macedonia, just the phrase before it. The churches of Macedonia in a great 
trial of affliction. He goes on, and their deep poverty, their deep poverty. The word for deep means rock bottom. I mean, they're as low as you can get. They're as far down as you can possibly imagine. They're all the way to the bottom. But Paul says, I want you to know something, Corinthians. What you haven't yet completed, the Macedonians have already done, and they did it in great affliction when persecution and the difficulties were everywhere all the time all around them and they were in the deepest poverty as deep if not more deep than the ones that are in Jerusalem and yet they wanted to give to this offering I want want you to notice with me for a moment five quick statements I want to make them quickly I can't I can't preach on these They're giving, that is the Macedonians. You see what Paul's doing? He's taking a church in a far more difficult circumstances and he's using them as an illustration. He's saying, look, if the Macedonians can do this, you Corinthians can do this. If the Macedonians who are in great affliction and in deep poverty can do this. You down here in the south at Corinth and Achaia, down here in the south where you're a port city and there's money going through your city all the time, you people can do this too. They're supposed to be laying aside every week for that offering. Supposed to be putting money aside every week for that offering. They weren't doing it. They hadn't completed it. It wasn't being accomplished. Corinthians, look at the Macedonians. The Macedonians have far less than you have, and yet the Macedonians are doing more than you're doing. And he uses them as an illustration. In great trial of affliction, their deep poverty, the Macedonians have been giving. But I want you to notice about their giving, it was motivated by grace. You notice the middle of verse verse 1? Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, the grace of God. Some of you get your concordance out and go look it up. If you've got a Young's concordance, it'll be the easiest way to do it. The word grace, charis, is found 10 times in chapters 8 and 9. Sometimes it's translated as the word grace. Sometimes it's translated as the word uh, thanks or thank. But it's 10 times in those two chapters. Why? Because what was going on in the church at Macedonia was the grace of God was at work in their lives. You understand what the grace of God is? It is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God toward us. You know where it begins? It begins the moment we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. You understand why I want to be a Christian? I don't ever want to not, I I can't never not be a Christian why I would never not want to be a Christian is because I have experienced the grace of God, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. There was nothing about me that earned it. There was nothing about me that was good enough for it. There was nothing about me that was worthy of it. God gave it to me freely because God had given to these Macedonians freely his grace The grace that saved them, the grace that sustains them, the grace that comforts them, the grace that guides them, this grace that God had given to them, this unmerited favor that God had given to them because they had been the recipients of God's grace. They wanted to be the channels of that grace out to others. This wasn't Paul coming and drawing up a law and saying, okay, I'm expecting you, point number one, 
here's your command. Point number two, here's your command. Point number three, here's your command. This is Paul coming and saying, look at the Macedonians. They didn't have any law. They had experienced the grace of God. And because what they had experienced in their own hearts and their own lives motivated them to want to be a part of helping their brothers and sisters in Christ and giving in this offering. It was motivated by grace, but secondly, it was in spite of their circumstances. I've already told you about it. In verse 2, a great trial of affliction, their deep poverty. You and I know nothing. We're beginning to know something, but not much. We know nothing of what it means to suffer for the cause of Christ. It's going to get worse in America. For all my post-millennial friends who think the world has got to get better and better before Jesus can come, Get your head out of the sand. That's not what the Bible teaches. And here was a world, here was a people who were in a great trial of affliction. Cancel culture? They were experiencing it every single day. Go into a job and they identify you as being somebody who's a follower of Jesus. And they didn't have any laws to restrict it. Your name was just put out of the pile. You weren't even considered. They didn't care who you were. There were no laws that could protect you against it. You just got no opportunity. They were in great trials of affliction. Go read 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Read about the, uh, read about the, the, the affliction that they were enduring. Deep poverty. Can, can I just tell you something? Are, are y'all still leaning in with me? Material wealth may cloak spiritual poverty or material poverty may cloak spiritual wealth. Now listen, material wealth may cloak spiritual poverty. Think of Revelation 3 in the church at Laodicea who said they were rich and increased in goods and had need of nothing. They had everything they could possibly want, the machinery. They had all of the reserves they could ever possibly need. But where was Jesus? Jesus is outside the church, knocking on the door to get in. But here's a Macedonian body of believers. These in Thessalonica and Berea, these that are in Philippi, these believers in Jesus, and they have this outward material poverty and it cloaks their inner spiritual wealth do you realize that if you know jesus christ you are a wealthy man and a wealthy woman even if you never have any of the goods that this world has to offer it was in spite of their circumstances number three it was with a joyful heart <laughs> Uh, I'm still working on this one just like you probably are. I want you to notice that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy. Do you realize your joy is not determined by the circumstances of your life? Your joy is not determined by how much or how little money you have. Your joy is not determined by any of those things. Joy is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment confidence and hope it's something that you can take everything from you everything from me and we can say even if my circumstances are as dire as possible my God shall work all things 
for good. My God shall work all things together for good to those that love him, to those that are called according to his purpose. You may hurt me, but my God will never hurt me. My God loves me. It was with a joyful heart. If there was anybody who could have been down, it would have been the Macedonians. Like some of us were a little while ago when we were singing and we looked like death warmed over. We looked like we just got up and we're still wiping the sleepy dust out of our eyes where we stayed up late into the night and we didn't prepare our hearts to come for the gathering of the believers in Jesus Christ. We didn't prioritize this as the most important meeting that we're having this week. And we drag in, some of us drag in late, hardly get there. Hey, listen, if anybody has a reason to drag, it's me. I could drag my feet anymore. And I don't know that I'm even dragging my feet with transverse myelitis. But I've got news for you. Because of the grace of God, we have every reason to come together and lift our hands and lift our voices and to put a smile on our face and to say, you know what, you can take everything away from me, but you can't take Jesus away from me or his grace away from me or the eternal life that I have away from me. I am his child, and no matter what you do to me, he always has good that he's doing for me. And whether I live in this life or I live in the life to come, I know that he is my Savior and he is my God. Wow. That would have been a place to shout amen. It was with a joyful heart. Number four, it was done with, without compulsion. Paul's not twisting the Corinthians' arms. It wasn't done in Macedonia by twisting their arms. Notice the end of verse 3. He says, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Freely willing. In my translations, it comes from one Greek word. It means they wanted to do what they did. Nobody had to coerce them into it. By the way, let me just tell you this. Whether you're giving your tithes, which we're not talking about today, that's the ongoing of the local church. Or you're giving to faith promise, what we call missions, and you're giving beyond your tithe. What the Old Testament called with tithes and offerings, what we're talking today, the tithes are what we use for the ongoing ministry to reach this local community in this local region. Our offerings are what we do in missions beyond our tithes. But you understand that if you have to give either of those, I have to, if I have to coerce you into giving either of those, please, I'm, I'm begging you, just keep it. Just keep it. You're not blessing us, and you're not blessing God by it. God says he loves a, what kind of giver? The very next chapter, God loves a cheerful giver. It was done without compulsion. I want you to notice, fifthly, it was done in proportion to their resources. Notice again, verse 3, for I bear witness that according to their ability, the Greek word is dunamis. It's the word we get dynamite from, but I don't like that word because dynamite is destructive. It blows things up. Dunamis is the word that's used about the resurrection of Jesus, the power that raised up Jesus you understand that they did what was according to their power. In other words, they sat down and they looked at their resources and they, saw, they said to themselves, we can do this. We can, we can take this little bit extra. We can make a sacrifice here. We can do this extra. 
And they gave according to their power. That's how most of us give. Most of us don't even give to our power. They gave according to their power. It was in proportion to their resources, but here's what I'm going to finish up. It was as well by divine generosity. It was by divine enablement. Notice again verse 3. For I bear witness that according to their ability, according to their power, according to their resources, yes, and... Do you, do you understand the words that are about to be read? Do, do you get these next three words? Beyond their ability. Beyond their ability. Wait a minute. I understand all there is to know about giving according to, in proportion to what I have. I can sit down with my checkbook and I can look at what I have and I can say, okay, I can eke this out and I can eke this out and I can eke that out and I, I can sacrifice, I can give up a Coke over here, give up a cupcake here, I can give up a dinner out, I can do this and I have a little bit more to give. But you hear what he says? He says the Macedonians who have this heart filled with joy, who are filled with a spirit of generosity, who though they're in deep affliction, deep poverty, in great affliction, they come and they say, we see what we can do, but we can do more than we can do because God can do it through us. And that's what we call a faith promise. This card, you understand what this card is? On this side of the card, it's a place for you to tell us what you think God would have you to give to missions above your tithes to the cause of missions in this next missions year, from fall to fall, the next missions year. There, there, is, there is no place for your name on it. Do you see that? There is no place for your address on it. There is no place for your, for your cell phone number, your home phone number on it. If, if you take that little QR code and you put your camera at it, it takes you to a place on the website where you can enter this same information, but there's no place for your name or your address or your phone number. You know why? Because your church, your church is living by faith. Your pastor's living by faith. We make commitments to missionaries and mission causes on the base of trusting God and saying, God, if you will provide, we want to do this. I've been here 40 years. We didn't start out with $525,000. We started out with just a meager amount of money. Actually, they were doing this before I came, and I picked it up and began doing it with them. I was doing this in Georgia before I came to Huntington. Your church is living by faith, and we're saying, Lord, we're trusting you to provide all that we need to be able to take care of our missionaries and to be able to take some new missionaries on, to be able to carry the gospel to places where we presently are not going with the gospel because there are people who need to be reached with the truth. Yeah, we, we dig wells and we provide filters for water and we've helped to build hospitals, all of that, part of our missions. But you understand, you can make people well at a hospital, you can give them clean water, but if you don't tell them about Jesus, you've not done them any favor. You've extended their misery, and you've left them hopeless. Our church is trusting God. 
So you say, Pastor, how do you know what you're going to do? Because the leadership of your church says, God, we trust you. We believe this is what you've called us to do. We believe this is what you want us to do. And God, we're going to trust you to do this through your people to enable us to do it. Now we're coming to you and we're saying, will you be one of those? That'll go beyond their ability? Can I just tell you that you will never regret it? Think about what it says here. Out of their deep poverty, they abounded in the riches of their liberality, going beyond their ability, not just according to their ability, but beyond their ability. How do you go beyond your ability? You can only go beyond your ability if God supplies it. And you know what we've discovered, Mary and I? We've been married 46 years. You know what we've discovered? We've been married 46 years, right? I get that right? We've been giving faith promise for more than 46 years. Has God always provided whatever we committed? I have to ask her because I don't do the finances. I've never written a check. If I took a check with my name on it to the bank, they'd say it was forged. I've never seen a paycheck. I don't even know what a paycheck looks like. And I'm joking to some degree. God has supplied it every single time. And God will supply it for you if you've asked him, Lord, lead me. I want to give to missions in this new year, fall to fall. I want to give to missions in this new year. I want us to do more, $525,000. I want us to do more. I want us to be able to have missionaries in other places of the world in addition to where we presently have people in the world. Do you realize that your church from this ridge in a small city is touching the world? And planting churches, one of which you'll hear about tonight, in places that most of us will never go. You're not going to see the immediate results of your giving. You're not going to see some kid show up with a picture that's got a new clothes on his back and his belly's no longer distended. It's the long haul. You're going to look and you're going to see in eternity what your giving did in changing the lives of people tonight in Mallow, in Mallow Ireland. You're going to look back and say, you know what? My giving, though I didn't see the immediate results, I wasn't impulsively caused to give. I can see the long-term results when I get to heaven and I stand before Jesus. They gave beyond their ability. I wrote it this way in my Bible last night. They took risks with their giving. They gave in a way that was more than they could give. They gave in a way that was more than they could give. In other words, it required God to show up and God to provide. And God did. And God always does. Think of it this way and I finish. Matter of fact, just turn with me for a moment. Turn with me uh, back to Mark chapter 12. Just go back to Mark chapter 12. I'm reading through the gospel of Mark right now. And um, this is an incredible little story. It's in, find it in the gospel of Luke as well, Luke chapter 21. That's the parallel passage. Listen to it, verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. 
You think Jesus sees our giving? And many who were rich put in much. There's 13 of these receptacles. They're, they're made out of metal in the temple. The, what was the temple? And the rich would often turn their money so that they would have plenty of coins. You know why? When the money hit that metal, those cornet-shaped offering bins, when their money hit it, they wanted to make as much noise as possible. Please don't tell anybody about $525,000. Please don't tell anybody. We don't need their help. We don't need the media to show up. We don't need a news item about it. We're not looking for the blessing of anybody else. We're looking for the blessing of God. That's what we long for. Verse 42, then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. It's a Roman coin. It's the lowest denomination you can have. Let me see if I can help you to understand it. I've been walking my circle as much as I can, walking my circle where I live. I saw two coins. I saw two coins on the street where I'm walking my circle. You know what they were? They were pennies, copper pennies. I didn't even stop to pick them up. Remember when you were a kid and you saw any kind of a coin? You stopped and picked it up because a penny was worth a penny or maybe almost a penny. It's not even worth bending over and having to push yourself back up to get back up and keep walking to pick up a penny. That's the kind of offering she, came, she brought like a penny would be. So he called his disciples to him and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their, what's the word? That's how most of us give. They all put in out of their abundance, but she, oh no, she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And do you know what she was saying when she did that? She was casting herself on God, and she was saying, God, you are my provider. And God, I'm not going to trust in what I, can, what I can build up in a bank account. God, I'm going to give you what I have, and I'll trust you for the provision. That's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to pray, what would God have me to give? And then you to say, oh, God, I trust you, and I put myself over onto you and trust you to provide I trust you to provide. Notice down chapter 8, verse 5, back to 2 Corinthians. Look at it. I didn't get to it. I ran out of time, but look at it. Verse 5, and not only as we hoped. In other words, they didn't do it exactly the way we, th we thought they were going to do it. What, what was different about it? They first gave themselves to the Lord. You know what the little widow lady's doing? She's giving herself to the Lord. She's saying, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm asking you to go all in. If you feel guilted into it, if you feel pressured into it, if you feel arm twisted into it, please just keep it. God will provide. God always does. But there's a lot of you that ought to join us and help us reach the world.
with the gospel of Jesus Christ.